Hi, Just a Story podcast. Um, I'm a new listener, and as I was listening, one came up that really sparked in my state. I live in New Jersey, and one of them is the myth and urban legend of the Jersey Devil, and he is more found in the Pine Barrens, more South Jersey, where I I even went to school down by that area in college, and he is most described as having a body of a kangaroo, the head of a dog, the face of a horse, large feathery wings, antlers similar to a deer, and a forked reptilian tail and intimidating claws. Most people have reported their encounters, some have not. And it's mostly places odd and had haunt like weird occurrences or just weird, crazy stories about people it went through. So yeah, I just want to tell you a story about the Jersey Devil and maybe you'll make a podcast about it because I think that would be really awesome. Have you heard the story of- and written on the wall? And everyone and plus- has different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, that our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Hi, we missed you so much. How was your week? I know, I haven't been watching you lately. Tell me all about it. Really? That's fascinating. You're still lovely. You can't hear them. I can! (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, we do want to thank everybody for reaching out, talking to us, leaving reviews. I thought we couldn't hear them. Online? Like on our Twitter at Just a Story Pod, on our website, justastorypod.com, and all of other Just a Story Pod things, like at Gmail, etc. We've had some lovely reviews from Sienna Hopkins and Aki Egg. Aki Egg? Yeah. I like that name. <laughs> We're responsible for her not passing her classes. <laughs> oh, Aki Egg, don't do that, and don't cite us as a source, for God's sake. <laughs> You definitely can, because on our site are all of our sources. Right, but cite them, not us. But you know what? This is the last week to get in your review or Twitter shout-out or etc. 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 To get in the... Pause, go read it, prize, magical mystery hat of fun time. That's right. This is your last week to get an entry in, so do it quick. Hurry. Fast. (laughs) Run. Just kidding. Next week, we will announce the winner. And if you are the winner of the Pause Go Read a Prize Magical Mystery Hat Tour Hall of Fame trophy stuff, official name, TM, you can either go to our Pause Go Read It store, which is linked through our website, or you can choose some merch. We have merch. I guess we could do that. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. So you can go check that out. It's also links on our website as well. And it's all designed by... Samantha, a new design, not just like our logo slapped on a shirt. It's cool. I actually really like it. I was really excited about it. Still am. And one other way you can get in touch with us is the Urban Legend Hotline. And you can reach us on the Urban Legend Hotline by dialing 512-222-3375. And you can leave a voicemail just telling us about the urban legends you grew up with, things you'd like To hear us talk about and investigate further. And this week's episode is brought to you by... The Urban Legend Hotline. That's right. We had a call in and we've actually had several requests for this week's episode topic. 
The Jersey Devil. I saw The Jersey Devil. Really? Yeah, there's a YouTube video. Oh my God, the, My Little Pony in Space. That's what it looks like. <laughs> a goat, like a tiny goat, which goats are scary. Black Philip. It's a pygmy goat with wings. <laughs> pygmy goat with wings, which is actually horrifying. I would be terrified <laughs> were I to be confronted with a small flying goat. Let's be fair. So the Jersey Devil, the Jersey Devil. It's spooky. Is that all you know about it? Well, let's start by saying that my five-year-old came out here the other day and looked at a book that we've ordered, and it has a drawing of the Jersey Devil on the front, and he started going, is that animal half horse, half dragon, half snake, half bat, half bird, half lion, half... (laughs) Just, like, listing off, like, 75 creatures. So I think more than anything, the Jersey Devil is just confusing. The Jersey Devil is... Uh, very confusing. It has lots and lots and lots of stories around it. Now, there are still sightings today. Like that one of the pygmy goat with wings. Yes. But these sightings go back a very, very long time. How long? Well, <laughs> depends on who you ask. I'm asking you. Oh, uh, me? Yes. Me? Pretend to be an expert. I'm an expert, just not in this. <laughs> okay. But I've read a few books. For a very long time, people have been seeing the Jersey Devil, but I'm assuming, because of its name, that they see it predominantly in Jersey. New Jersey. That's what I meant. This is not a British cryptid. No. This is not like Loch Ness Monster's best friend. So this is a creature cryptid monster Mm -hmm. seen in South Jersey, an area called the Pine Barrens. I assume that is a pine forest of some sort? It kind of is. It kind of is. So it's a large, still underdeveloped area. It's definitely been encroached upon. When you say underdeveloped, do you mean it's like protected? Like, is it like a preserve or is it just like nobody wants to go there? Big kind of forest right in the middle of urban New Jersey. Interesting. And it's because the New Jersey devil lives there. Right. He's protecting it. I understand. Or she. I don't want to. Label him. Yeah. Yeah. Most devils are he's. (laughs) I didn't ask for his pronouns. Poor form. But it was it's always been this kind of really not great place to live because I mean there are scraggly pine trees. It's got really poor soil, very sandy. Uh, early mm. settlers really weren't able to form it. Originally people that lived there, of course the Native Americans, and then we have like Hessians that stayed. And the, they they set up camp in the Pine Barrens yes. areas and people were like, I'm not fighting a Hessian for sand. Right, he's going to send his buddy, <laughs> the Headless Horseman, after me. Yeah, I'm not fighting a Hessian for sand. I'll go over here to where the nice dirt is and let him sit there and mull over his friend's death. Right. And then you also have a lot of Tories living there. Oh, <laughs> no Tories. No, thank you. So those would be British loyalists who supported the king rather than the Federalist. Right, and they used that excuse to be like highwaymen. Along the coach roads they did ride? Yes. <laughs> Sword and pistol by their side? Exactly. <laughs> All right. Did they fly a starship? No. Okay, well, we'll keep with the first first then. <laughs> so this area is always kind of very poverty stricken. A lot of the people that lived there had these just subsistence jobs. There's foraging, barely making it by. There was a small time where they were able to do some industrial work. And because, I mean, people don't really live in the woods anymore, except, you know, that one guy. That one guy, and we don't want to talk to him. I'm not a rocket scientist, and I don't know much, but I know that usually where there is an area of land that is not particularly hospitable to human life, cryptids creep up. 
for whatever reason. When there's a place people don't go. So what are some examples of that? Like the swamp, the Honey Island swamp monsters in the swamp. And then like you, you have the sewer gators in New York because people don't want to go in the sewers. And you have Bigfoot in the woods. Everywhere. Everywhere. Harsh living conditions personified as monsters. You know, the dragons live in the caves. and So where did the Jersey Devil come from other than frustration? <laughs> well, that's a great question. So as the legend goes, the Jersey Devil... Is from a long time ago. How long ago? Pre-United States. Hmm. Colonial New England. Hmm. There are several, several versions of the story. So okay. I'll, I'll tell you a few of them. You have this woman, Mother Leeds. Mother Leeds. Yes. And she already had 12 children. Oh, so she was going to have the 14th and just skip number 13 because that's an unlucky number? She wished she could. But she had so many kids, and I think as... As anyone that would have 12 kids. Whenever she found out she was going to have another one, she said, I'm tired of children. Let it be the devil. Did Margaret Sanger write the story? Yes. Okay. She, she, you've debunked it. She's the <laughs> original creator. This was her support story for Planned Parenthood. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. okay. If there was Planned Parenthood, we wouldn't have the Jersey Devil. Let's make bumper stickers. Whether it be the 13th child or she was just very upset that she was having another one after having 10, or whether the stories going around that she had cavorted with the devil himself. And you mean cavorted in like the the biblical like eyebrow twitchy way? Oh, yes. Oh, no. Whatever the case was, she had the child. Did she have a child or did she have the devil? Depends on who you ask. Okay. So... In some cases, the child was born horribly deformed. And in other cases, he was born normal Uh and then took on some fiendish characteristics. Oh, no. And started to twist and deform. Ew. And then some stories, they took this deformed child and locked him away in the attic or cellar. Classy. Where he eventually escaped. It's classy. It's a good move. You have a deformed child, just lock them in the basement or attic. Parenting. Is that not what you're supposed to do? Well, I mean, we've got the three up there right now. They yeah. seem fine. So another version, in 1735, there was a violent thunderstorm <laughs> sweeping through the Pine Barrens. <laughs> Thank you. And on this one dark night. <laughs> that's good. We got it. On this one dark night, Miss Leeds lay in labor, attended by a group of old women from the community. They were probably all witches. Well, they weren't. Oh. But there was definitely rumor around that Miss Leeds was. No, say it isn't so. A woman rumored to be a witch in colonial America. She did end up having this boy, and it looked okay. So it was a boy. Oh, you're right. In this one. Yeah. And then it began to transform. Its body became serpentine. Hooves replaced its feet. Its face stretched into the structure of a horse's head. Oh, good Lord. And bat wings emerged from its back. I can imagine that that would be very upsetting to see. (laughs) But, I mean, you could write that up and get it in a journal just like that. Right? I'm going to name that after somebody. Somebody I don't like. Food. You have to name it after food. And so, of course, the women screamed in terror. And some accounts of the story have the Jersey Devil coming in, eating all of them, or at least attacking them. 
before flying out of the window. Like the people in the room? Of course. Like this. Okay, so it was born? Yes, but then it like took on a huge size. So it wasn't like a little baby Jersey Devil. Oh, well, that destroys like this, the quasi cute image I had. The little plush Jersey Devil? Yeah. And other versions of the story have that he flew out and then feasted on many children in the community. Oh my God, why would he eat children? I guess they're the easy targets, whatever. Is it human though? Like, does it have a conscience or is it an animal? Well, you can ask him next time you see him. Does he have a P.O. box? I'll just write him. I don't think he's much of an email guy. So there are some old books that recount these folk tales from the area. And Alfred Heston's book, Jersey Wagon Jaunts, has an interesting little twist on the story. Mm. And it's that every day, the Jersey Devil would return to Miss Leeds' house and sit on her back fence. And she would come out and just try to shoo him away and would not feed him. Well, you don't feed strays. They just keep, you know, like, that's really bad form. Everyone knows that. That's just common knowledge. It's how you end up with an extra pet. I don't think Miss Leeds was much in the way of wanting pets. So, in 1740, as the tale goes, a brave clergyman. Mm. Now, I forgot to mention that Miss Leeds was a fine, upstanding Quaker woman when she was not out cavorting with the devil and being a witch. Oh, so she was a, she led a double life. Apparently. And so one day a brave clergyman came and exercised the Jersey Devil and said that this would last. Did they do jumping jacks? <laughs> Not that kind of exercise. <laughs> and he said this exorcism would last 100 years. I'm going to guess there was a thing in 1840. He did reappear in 1840. And that's when the stories come about. And that's probably kind of where this legend started. It's more around that time. But they say like many years ago, 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. There was a woman who shooed this thing off her porch with a broom. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And now we are all terrified of it because we don't have any brooms. Mom, the Jersey Devil's on the fence again. Is that it with a broom and shut up. Feed your brother. There are 12 of you and only one of him. Take him out. Numbers, Timmy, numbers. I don't think they had a Jersey accent then. They had a Jersey accent. Am I doing a Jersey accent? Probably not. Just an angry mother accent was what I was going for. So there are some other origin stories in the meantime while this devil is exercising. <laughs> is there a training montage? Oh, I hope there is. <laughs> it's like Eye of the Tiger playing in the background. So one of the tales, it takes place in the American Revolution. Okay. In 1778. I'm familiar. The Battle of Chestnut Creek near Leeds Point, where a girl fell in love with a British soldier. Who was the devil! Well, all the British soldiers were the devil. Yeah, that's why they wore red. Of course. She ended up being cursed for this. This act of treason. Wow, that really separates church and state there, doesn't it? Long, proud history. Start in the beginning. And of course, in the 1850s, when the story, I think, when it really truly emerged, Mm -hmm. there's no hard evidence on that. There's your classic gypsy story. Mm. Let me see if I can do it. I really haven't looked at this. Let's see. There's a woman, and she's, what would a woman be doing? She's home doing chores, probably barefoot and pregnant, and someone knocks on her door and asks for food, and it looks like this gross old person, and she's like, no, you're a gross old person? Pretty much. And she says, no, you can't have any food. Go away. And shoes him away with a broom. I'm not sure about the broom, but me probably so. I'm, I'm going to guess. Yeah. She would need this broom in a few years. So then, like in Beauty and the Beast style, 
the the beggar reveals themselves to be something other than what they originally seemed. I'm guessing a gypsy. A gypsy. Then the gypsy pronounces a curse upon her for all eternity, and she's probably pregnant. And she says, "The baby you're carrying will be the devil, or something." Kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. Classic gypsy gypsy curse story. Yeah, it's the stranger clothes sacred hospitality thing. So there are even, even more than that, I promise you, <laughs> versions of this story. But those are some of the more widely spread ones. And he's only seen as kind of this harbinger of bad luck. Every time someone would have, like, crops fail, or there was a drought, or your cows weren't producing milk, or anything like that, blame it on the Jersey Devil. Scapegoat. Yeah. The New Jersey scapegoat. Doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well as the Jersey Devil. Can't put that on a bumper sticker. So... There are some supposed interesting sightings throughout the years. Oh. So one is Commodore Stephen Decatur, and he was a 19th century American naval hero. And at the time, he was currently fighting the Barbary Coast Pirates. That's very swashbuckling of him. Yes. And he traveled to Hanover Iron Works to inspect the cannonballs they were producing. So this was outside the Pine Barrens. They were getting all this iron out of the like swampy area and he was out testing out some of the cannonballs as you do as he was on the firing range he saw a great winged beast so being a good american hero he shot it yes all right he quickly aimed his cannon at this flying winged creature no no and hit it okay and then what happened he went straight through him but the Jersey Devil or the Great Winged Beast just flew off. So there's not a chance he missed. Commodore doesn't miss. Hell no. Commodore doesn't miss. He's an American hero. He was on the $20 bill. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> then if he's on the $20 bill, clearly he didn't miss. Because that would mean he missed and lied about it. And American heroes don't do that. On the back of the bill was him actually fist fighting the Jersey Devil. <laughs> This is what he was training for when he was exercising. That's right. Who tied it all together. Another famous sighting was by Joseph Bonaparte. I'm sorry, like Napoleon? Yes. So how does one get to be Joe when your brother or your relative is named Napoleon? <laughs> like, hey, I am Napoleon Bonaparte and this is my brother, Joe. My mother ran out of interesting names. Well, Joe, like, was much more chill, apparently. Joe has all the chill. Joe did not want to be part of Napoleon's gang. Like, he made him king of Spain. <laughs> and Joe was like, I'm Joe, king of Spain. He didn't want to be. He he tried to abdicate several times, and Napoleon wouldn't let him. How does one not get to abdicate? They're like, really, really, no, I don't want to be king. Napoleon's like, yes, you will. You will be king? Or I will slit you from knave to chop. Would you stop with a knave to chop? <laughs> you can't even reach my knave. So, once he was finally allowed to abdicate, <laughs> <laughs> what is one to do? Jersey. And he built this big estate, and anyway, he was out hunting, and he claims to have seen the Jersey Devil. So lots of other ridiculous stories throughout <laughs> Are they ridiculous? The They're they amazing. They really are. Including that he was seen out cavorting with mermaids. Mermaids? And... Where are their mermaids? On the coast. Oh. Of Jersey. Uh, they're uh, Jersey mermaids. Are they as pretty as the Fiji mermaids? Probably. <laughs> Jersey Shore. OG. Another of my favorite, if not favoritest, 
little tiny stories about the Jersey Devil is that there were also lots of stories when we talked about the pirates. So there were lots of pirates along the coast. And one great tale is about Captain Kidd. Oh, I know Captain Kidd. And Not personally. Captain Kidd supposedly buried treasure along Barnegat Bay. And this was before he was executed in 1701. Lots of pirates were executed. Just like all good pirates do when they bury treasure, they take one of the other pirates, <laughs> guessing your least favorite, mm-hmm. and decapitate them mm-hmm. and throw their body into the treasure so that their spirit can guard the treasure. That's not a thing. <laughs> According to the tales, it is. That's not a thing. I just read like the giantest book ever on the history of pirates. That is not a thing. It's just a story, Sam. It's just a story, Jacob. But it gets better. No, it can't. It always gets better. How does it get better? Now, you have this headless pirate ghost roaming around this area. Protecting the treasure. Now, who else would he have to hang out with but the Jersey Devil? Oh my god, let's make a TV show. Right? This oh, would be oh my god. Okay. the best adventure cartoon oh, buddy ever. Buddy cop yes. thing so you have the jersey devil and his bff forever headless pirate guy oh my god i'm gonna make a song a song i'm gonna make a song hold on we're making a theme song for our show right now yeah what do you need like how much we don't have time for this i just need like uh, like like 30 seconds hold on um okay i'm gonna pause this recording and literally we're literally giving you 30 seconds to come up with a song you ready all right pausing now and we'll be right back all right have you got it okay i'm not a i'm not much of a singer but just go with me here it's not easy being me you know you know they call me the devil and i guess it seems it's so it's so but i have a friend he's good company he doesn't complain that i'm covered with fleas and we go on adventures every single (laughs) night in the woods we go out and make mischief and stuff Boom, 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 boom. The conversation only has one side, one side. When others see me coming, they all hide, all hide. But we get along with the greatest of ease, my best buddy who sailed the seas. He's a pirate ghost with no head and no eyes who can complain or talk back. But that's okay, because I'm lonely and I got hit with a broom. Broom, 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 broom. You're ridiculous. I have another one. Okay. No. I think about giving you more than 30 seconds, it would have like 10 verses. It would. It was the greatest drinking song of all time. I had another one with like, but it was more rappy, and I didn't think that was right. I was like. Are you going to freestyle? I, I was a little bit. It's like there was a, the thing about like, they say I have a horse face, but I don't look like SJP. Stop talking all this shit on me. I'm going to stop you right there. <laughs> So there are lots and lots and lots of sightings throughout the 1800s and supposedly in the 1700s in the colonial America. Well, the colonists had a a lot of worries. Like witches. Like witches. And something that doesn't get talked about in schools with the same frequency, let's say. Because there's not an Arthur Miller play about it. Because there's not an Arthur Miller play about it. People were real worried about bestiality. Bestiality? Buggery, Jacob. Buggery. Buggery. 
What's buggery? Buggery is interchangeable with sodomy. Oh. Which makes me question, like, when people are like, oh, he's a cheeky little bugger, and things like that. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Makes me question everything I know about everything, actually. So, the reason I bring this up is this idea that the Jersey Devil was born of an unnatural coupling is very rooted in the American psyche. Right, the monstrous birth. Yes. And a lot of that has to do with this idea that we are so close to being animals ourselves and only by the grace of the Lord and his divine providence do we have sentience and a soul and therefore we're at any moment if we're not rigorously maintaining our divine connection with God we could be sapped back into being brutes who hit each other with clubs and go mm. And have sex with animals. And have sex with animals, because that's what animals do all the time, is have sex with animals that are not their species. So there was this idea that we had our corporeal body, the flesh, and then we had the spirit. And this is still prevalent in a lot of Christian theology, even today. It's not an archaic idea, but the way it was capitalized on was sort of different then. Because there was like this idea that you could lose that divine connection, which is not as present now. And it was very literal. Right, like it's so easy to cross that line. Mm -hmm. There's this thin little line between man and beast. Right, people who were not like super stoked to pray all the time and things were considered loathsome beast. So some writing on this. John Winthrop, who's a founder in Massachusetts, said that he struggled against this wanton brutish flesh. He said that man is little better than the wild beast, which all the ordinance of God are bent against to retain and subdue it. New England was described by Winthrop as a place of nothing but wild beast and beast-like men. So the idea that they're coming to this place that doesn't have kind of that cushion of civility, that they're going out into nature. Into the wild. Into the wild to die on a bus. There's not, like I said, the cushion of civility. There's not, their values aren't naturally going to be reinforced. They had to bring God into this wilderness. Right, because there were no people here. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sir Thomas Brown wrote, We are all monsters. That is a composition of man and beast. And our old friend. Cotton Mathers. Yeah, that's the one. Says that we are all compounded of two things, man and beast. And then he confided in personal diary that, Lord, I am viler than the beast before me. What was that beast doing before him? I don't know. Buggery. Oh, no. I'm sorry. Lord, I'm viler than the beast before thee. Before thee. Aw, oh, damn. <laughs> no. The beast was doing nothing. But at this time, people who, like I said, were not super stoked to pray or were considered ungodly or posed a threat to the moral fortitude of the community were shunned. Kicked out. Kicked out. Sent packing. Off to the woods Good luck with Black Phillip. And they were sent out into the wilderness to live among beasts who had the same moral comportment as them, apparently. They often referred to the people who had been excommunicated as goats. Just like a lowly creature? Like Black Phillip. Black Phillip is from the witch. (laughs) I'm going to keep saying it a thousand times. Black Phillip scared the shit out of me. (laughs) And there was a lot of thought that men exhibited characteristics of different beasts. And one of the ways that that was commonly brought up was like with surnames. People would say that a surname could be God's finger pointing to a man. And so like there was a man that did not get along with Roger Williams and his last name was Fox. And Williams wrote extensively 
about how he was foxy, foxy, no sly and uh, conniving and ate chickens. I don't know. I mean, you mentioned bestiality, and he's like the beast. How man is so close to being just a creature in the wild, and I think of. Yeah, it's saying like the beast with two backs. Yeah, that saying is weird to me. I've never liked it. I always thought it just sounded like deformed. Like it sounds, it sounds gross. Cotton Mather actually described that beast with two backs and says that it's when men show their brutishness, that brutishness could unseat reason and enthrone the bestial soul in its place. Oh my! So sex can make you an animal. Oh no! If you're doing it right, yeah, yeah, right, you know, right, right, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what you said. Yeah, what? literally, you just, you just said it. Yeah, I did. <laughs> um, and so bestiality was singled out as a particularly abhorrent sin because it reminded people of their capacity to become animals, or that they were in some way related to animals. Let's take a brief second to define bestiality. Sex with animals. Thank you. Just in case. We have some innocent souls listening to this show. If you are an innocent soul, you should not be listening to this so- show. I mean, I'm actually going to not recommend this for you. No, <laughs> you are not our target audience. We don't want to make anyone worse than they already were. The world will do that to you. Just wait. Yeah, come back in a year. So the fear of bestiality was so ever present and such a like guiding tenet of Puritan and Quaker colonial let's just say colonial america that men were not allowed to milk cows oh i don't want to touch that sweet teat (laughs) no it was a woman's chore if a man was seen entering a barn and exiting with a pail of milk he was gonna have some splaining to do and i found this great quote in new haven colony a man walked in on another man buggering a cow buggering buggering when he saw that someone had witnessed it he says oh i was only milking it and the other man says it is the devil's milking and it would bring him to the gallows sick burn sick burn in several colonies the punishment for being caught in the act of bestiality was castration if you were married what if you weren't i think you died oh okay i think And the Quakers specifically, so we were talking about Miss Leeds being a good Quaker woman, never defined bestiality as a capital crime. And it was defined that way in several other colonies. They would commonly dole out whippings and people would forfeit one third of their estate and they would be in prison for about six months. But if you did it twice, you do it once, shame on the cow. You do it twice, shame on you. You go to jail forever. Poor cow. (laughs) Oh, we have not gotten to poor cow yet, sir. So from 1642 to 1666, New England executed six men for bestiality. However, they executed 13 women and two men for witchcraft. While I know there were men executed for witchcraft, we've talked about it before. More weight. More weight. More weight. I, like, it feels like this is like the male equivalent To the witch trials. Oh my god, there's so much interesting writing on that. They talk about how when women were accused of being witches, a lot of times it was older women who didn't have any heirs who had some land. That sounds ungodly. Right? So they would, you know, accuse them of witchcraft, they'd be executed, and then somebody had to to take that off their hands. I mean, what were they going to do with it? 
Right. Or it's just someone that was like, I mean, we've talked about this before, like someone that just wasn't an upstanding citizen in the community. Someone people didn't like. Right. And that was the case, but that was not as much the case before the hysteria in Salem. Most of the cases were postmenopausal women who were property owners. It was very much a strategic thing. Now, interestingly... And inversely, in the cases of men who are accused of bestiality, almost all the charges were laid by women. That is interesting. And they think it's kind of like there was a bro code (laughs) and the women weren't in on it. Like bros before sows? I actually think that's not true. (laughs) I I think the sow got put first. Pigs need love too. Pigs need love too. How do you think you get bacon? So most of the men who were accused of bestiality were single men who were young and often had no family in the area, and they didn't have very high standing within the community. And most often, people were actually convicted of attempted buggery. I just want to attempt buggery. Okay, well, that varies. So most courts said that if there was any penile penetration, you had completed buggery. Some said that you had to spill forth your seed in order to have completed buggery. Thank you for that mental image. Sorry, you ask. (laughs) And if there was evidence of penetration, you would be executed. How does one have evidence of that? Honey, we'll get there. We will get there. We will talk about the variety of witnesses that were brought against these men and just just one one little tick. So was it like the witch trials where you had to have... Two witnesses? Yes. Two witnesses were required for capital punishment in New England because two witnesses were required for capital punishment in the... Bible. Bible. Yeah, that's the one. And the reports of buggery in New England are so colorful. For example, in 1703 in South Carolina, Francis Oldfield accused John Dixon of buggery. And the testimony before the court... As follows, by means of the light of the moon shining through the holes in the windows and a small fire on the floor. This is romantic. He plainly saw John Dixon in the very act of buggering a brown bitch, which, bitch after Dixon had done the beastly act, jumped off the cabin floor and turning about licked her privy parts. Bitch, please. (laughs) If you don't giggle a little. (laughs) I mean, this is a legal document. Legal documents should not have that amount of levity. So a bitch is a dog. A female dog. An array is a drop of golden sun. And then, like, the onslaught of buggery panic begins. And it really runs at full tilt, like, from 1640 to 1643 in New England. This is when everybody getting in trouble. So in 1640 in Massachusetts, some dude, according to John Winthrop, he doesn't say some dude. He says... A wicked fellow given up to bestiality confesses to this terrible sin. And he says that he never saw any beast go before him, but he lusted after it. Oh, my. So literally anything that moves, this guy's like, yep, yep, yep. And then in Salem, which we know Salem's record on letting things go and just moving on and being tolerant. Salem apparently was just like Sodom and Gomorrah. They they thought so. William Hatchett, who was described as a stupid, idle, and ill-disposed boy, told people that he was too sick to attend church one Sunday. So he just stayed at home eating his chicken soup. Well, yes, until he got hungry for something with a little more meat on its bones. Oh, no. 
He was found in buggery with a cow upon the Lord's Day in an open field in broad daylight. Not on the Lord's Day. According to documents, he denied that he'd gone through with it, but the court felt otherwise. He was executed as prescribed in Leviticus, and the guilty cow was killed before him as a prelude to his execution. What did they do with the cow after? Like, did they have a barbecue? No, that's cannibalism. What? It's cannibalism. Oh, you Puritans. It has bits of person inside of it. Ah, no. (laughs) You don't eat human. So, a further accounting of the unfortunate incident. Looking out her window, she espied him in the very act, but being affrighted of it, and dwelling alone, she durst not call out to him. But at night she made it known to a magistrate. Hatchet then confessed the attempt, and some entrance, but denied the completing of the act. During the trial, much scruple there was, with many, because there was but one witness, whereas the Bible requires two for conviction of a capital crime. A majority voted to convict him on the strength of the woman's testimony, and Hatchet's admission of some penetration. But, when Governor Richard Bellingham could not overcome his own doubts and pronounce the sentence of death, the deputy governor, John Endicott, performed that function. The cow, of course, was condemned to be slain and burnt and buried. Only then did Hatchet confess the full completing of this foul fact and attempting the like before. He became so penitent that his execution was postponed for an extra week to let the grace of the Lord complete its work. There is no doubt to be made, but the Lord hath received his soul in his mercy. Oh, well, that's a great happy ending. Okay, I don't think that we fully grasp everything that just happened in this in this paragraph. Oh, I think I understand. Uh, let's, let's take it one step at a time. He, he tried. He might have done it. I think he played just the tip of the cow. I think he did too. Okay. Just tip. Just tip. And um, then whenever they killed his sweet love heifer before him. Yes. And they killed it five ways. Yeah. Could be a murder ballad about this. <laughs> <laughs> You're not doing another song. I'm not pausing. Bessie, my darling. No. Killed the cow five ways, you were yeah. saying. And no one ate the cow. The cow was not cooked. It was burned. It was. It was did, not eaten. They did a poor job and they put it in a pit. People are literally dying of starvation at this time. Just just a reminder. And then he finally, after seeing his sweet love die, mm-hmm. confesses. And they're like, oh, well, since you confessed, we'll give you an extra week they to live. pause the execution. Yes. So that you can pray about it some more. And get right with God. And let his grace set in. Which I like that it's like starting drug therapy or something like you have to have you need to be on it at least seven days before it works then we're gonna kill your ass and they did and he was like 20 so then we get to a very interesting case yes more interesting than this how oh because there's more evidence 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 for video footage oh the puritans would have gone ape shit for video footage Of course, they would have thought it was witchcraft and burned anyone that tried to use it. Okay, so in New Haven in 1642, George Spencer was accused of buggery. Oh, really? Yes, and he was known as a loose man around town. He said he only read the Bible when his master made him do it. He was a servant, and he hadn't prayed in years and didn't have any need for it. So you see, basically evil. He was balding, and he only had one eye. So, top of the social ladder. Oh, I mean, just the pinnacle of manliness. So, 
Funny thing happened to George Spencer. On the way to the farm? Mm-hmm. There was a sow in town, and she gave birth to a litter of fugly piglets. And they were so fugly, in fact, that the only thing anyone could think when they saw these piglets was, hey, they look like George Spencer. Oh, man. <laughs> Which tells you, again, how pretty this man was. So they have this deformed piglet, and it has, it has some striking similarities to George. For starters... It's bald. Okay. Which I kind of thought, like... Pigs have hair. But just a little. No, think of the bristly hair of pig. Okay, well, it's you bald. You have boar hair paintbrushes. I know. Anyway. And then in addition to that, it only had one eye. Oh, yeah. Definitely sounds like George Spencer. And then, you know, George was known for his unruly ways and being a loose man about town and kind of, you know, being a little, little horny. And so to complete the trifecta of George's characteristics as personified through his offspring, the demon pig, out of its forehead, a thing of flesh grew forth and hung down. It was hollow, like a man's instrument of generation. Like a trumpet? Like a dick pig. Dick pig. <laughs> it was a one-eyed monster. <laughs> oh. Yeah, this, this pig had hollow persencephaly. Oh! Why don't you go back in time and tell them that and then you can... T- Save George Spencer's life. I mean, I'm just guessing. Like, if this really is what the pig looked like, it had hollow persencephaly. What is that? Oh, it's so hard to explain. Google it. Google it. Don't. Oh Don't Google God. it. Don't, Don't ever Google medical oddities unless you you should know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. It's terrible. Let's just say it would make a pig or person have one eye and a proboscis coming from its forehead. Okay. So this was New Haven's first capital trial. One for the record books. So, obviously, the piglet qualified as a witness. Right. It was physical evidence. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's physical evidence. All right. But it's it's actually a witness. <laughs> it speak? God willing and the creek don't rise. But no, I don't think it even lived. If it had hollow presence, definitely it did not. So, the the dead piglet served as one one witness. And then... George Spencer may have been ugly, but he wasn't any fool. And he had seen people get their sentences reduced by so much and just, like, get off so easy if they just confessed and repented. And he was like, okay, yeah, totes did it. Totes fucked the pig. And he did not realize. He screwed the pooch on that one. He screwed the pig. He did. No, he didn't. He didn't. But he said he did. And that was a fatal error. Because they were like, okay, cool. Well, we're going to set your execution up for... And he was like, well, I bet... I'm sorry? So no mercy for him? Oh, yeah. There would be mercy, but only God would give him mercy, not the colony of New Haven. Don't be ridiculous. He's a pig fucker. (laughs) He must die. That's like in the New Haven, like colonial draft of rules is pig fuckers must die. I think that's in Latin under their seal. So he's like, so I confess. So we're cool, right? Because like I saw that literally. I saw that child molester last week that, you know, confessed and you just whipped him a few times. And I kind of think child molestation's worse than pig fucking. And they're like, <laughs> you're wrong. wrong. You're so wrong. So wrong. So wrong. It just shows how screwed up you are that you think that. And so he's like, okay, well then I didn't. And they're like, Jack, Jack, no trade back. And after, in two months after the birth of the monster, the sow was slain before him, and then he was executed. Damn. 
So we move on to another case of unfortunate piglets. So who is this? Thomas Hogg. Hogg. Yeah. I think it's like Hogue. No, it's definitely Hogg. It's definitely Hogg. <laughs> H-O-G-G. So 1647, trial by piglets. So in a similar fashion, fugly piglets were born. This guy's kind of known around town to be kind of a fugly dude. And he wore a steel truss for his hernia. Ah, uh, medicine. What does that mean? What's a truss? It'd almost be like a like a steel cage. Where would he put it? It'd be around your groin area. Okay, well, they say that his steel truss was in the habit of splitting open his pants. That's unfortunate. And everyone saw his scrotum. Lots. It's super unfortunate. So you can imagine he did not have a sterling reputation as the man who walked about town with his ball cage cutting open his pants and displaying his scrotum. No one much liked Mr. Hogg. So, unfortunately, when the fugly piglets are born, one of them had a deformed eye that reminded the onlookers of the hang of Hogg's scrotum. I think they were looking a little too much at the hang of his skirt, huh? I think they didn't have a choice. I mean, think about it. People are wearing dresses and shirts up to their ears. There's that much skin out. Somebody's going to look. Everybody's going to look. He never confessed to having fathered the fugly piglet. He was in prison for two or three months and would not confess. And what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Well, there was only the one witness. The pig. The piglet. Piglet. So they tried to, like, spur him on. So they brought in the saucy sow. Oh. They made him fondle her. What? (laughs) No. Stop it, Puritans. And immediately there appeared a working of lust in the sow. I don't even want to know what that means. Do not describe it. (laughs) That's what the Puritans wrote down. Because they love Jesus. <laughs> and then they said, what do you think of it to Mr. Hogg? And he says, I see the hand of God in it. Oh, come on, man. I don't think he said that. I doubt it. I don't think he said that. And he kept him in jail for like three months. They'd made him fondle the pig. Isn't that <laughs> freaking punishment enough? Not if you like it. This is lady. And she, like, she liked it and they thought he liked it and they didn't see it as punishment. They were jealous. I'm, I'm surprised they weren't like, we saw his instrument of generation. <laughs> they were, probably. We didn't read the whole transcript. But they eventually gave up and just whipped him for general lewdness. Just for being, for existing and his scrotum. And there was masturbation. They were almost sure somebody saw him masturbate one time. Maybe. They were like, well, he did fondle that sow. <laughs> he needs to be whipped. We've all seen his scrotum and he fondled that sow. Whip him and whip him good. And then we move on to another interesting case. In 1662, one of the original founders of New Haven and a member of John Davenport's church. Fancy. And that is the most elite organization with the most rigorous admission policies in all of New England because, you know, church. He was a 60-year-old man called William Potter. And one day, his teenage son saw him buggering a sow. That is not something you want to walk in on. As a teenage son, what do you do? Mom, dad's got the pig again. Oh, son, you know your father's always been a pig fucker. (laughs) Let's go tell on him and get him out of our way. 
you think you can run the farm now you're old enough okay so he does go tell his mother and his mother kind of says like yeah he's pig fucker and so they go to tell the magistrates when he was confronted by two witnesses he was like well fuck it yeah i love this shit really like he was he conf- well he knew he was he was done he was dead there were two witnesses two it's witnesses a capital offense and there's freaking kid and his wife they're like you're a pig fucker pig fuckers must die read the seal you made it you stupid founder <laughs> you shouldn't have put that on the seal i thought it was a joke i thought it was a bit ironic so confronted with two witnesses he confessed to a lifelong fondness for the activity oh no from the time he was a 10-year-old boy back in jolly old England. And his wife said that she'd previously caught him with one of his bitches. As usually happens. Uh, yeah. And as usually happens. She was like, okay, just don't do it again and kill the dog. So he hanged it. Wonderful. <laughs> but then he did it again. The author of this paper has such a lovely little flourish here. He says that the most awkward passages in new england law journals that i have ever come across this is from a wonderful paper called things fearful to name by john murin he describes the scene as this man leads his wife through the flocks of animals and points out every single animal with which he had ever sexually partnered so that they could be std checked executed oh so on the day of his execution the animals are brought forward and they kill a cow two heifers three sheep and two sows and a partridge in a pear tree. So this is an incredibly well-documented little closeted phenomena. But as we've discussed, this is mainly centered on men. And in our story, what is alluded to is that the demoniacal offspring is a byproduct of a woman coupling unnaturally, right? With the devil. Could be. Could be. And interestingly, there was a woman who is a the only woman convicted of any bestiality-related offense in the New England colonies. Was her name Leeds? No, her name was Hannah Corkin. Was she from New Jersey? She was! <gasps> At half of it. In 1757, she was accused of buggery, like all of it. But I guess they didn't have enough evidence to convict her. But it has to have been pretty severe, whatever her offense was. It was not written about. Too fearful to be named. And she received an incredibly harsh sentence for this crime. She was whipped. She was given 20 lashes over her bare back four times on four different occasions over the course of four weeks in four different cities within the New Jersey area. So she was like publicly shamed. Oh, very much. She was propped up as an example of why you shouldn't do this. And I wonder if that goes into the, like the the loose imagination of like the depraved woman in this area. She was carted all around the state and trotted out as an example of the evils that women could do. Well, right. I mean, at this time, you had a lot of these ideas. You had the witch trials. You had this buggery thing. All of this is going on at the supposed time where Miss Leeds is either witching around, cavorting with the devil or some unnatural beast to have this monstrous birth. Well, right, and in New Jersey and the Pennsylvania area, there was a peak in charging people with sexual crimes in, like, 1760. It became an object of fascination in a, on the public agenda. People were being charged for, like, bestiality, fornication, masturbation, <laughs> all the Asians. It's interesting because as you have people kind of coming to their senses, coming to the age of reason, being enlightened and such, this idea of this magical coupling ability... So, like, coupling with 
animals yes. and be able to create an offspring. Yes. It needed to be replaced with something more scientific. And it was ish. Because this was the beginnings of science. I have an excellent quote from a book called Taming Lust by Benatar and Brown. They discuss this transition from this idea of magical thinking to reason and scientific inquiry. The religious zeal and supernatural beliefs of the previous century made their way for a new spirit of religious moderation, an enlightened scientific and philosophic inquiry. Although the new mood mitigated the urge to exterminate the sinners and the sin in a violent manner, the logic of the biblical prohibition was now joined by a scientific effort to understand the world by creating clearly defined categories. This enlightenment effort to make sense of the natural world led intellectuals to examine the strange, the exotic, and the deformed. Now such phenomena must be explained in the natural and not the supernatural terms. The age, after all, tried to banish Satan, not God. Consequently, the appearance of freakish creatures could no longer be explained as the work of the devil. Freaks challenged notions of divine order. So this wasn't just a demon being born. This was something going against God's natural order of things. Right. It's like if you create something monstrous, it's because you have defied the law of nature. Which is God's law. Yes. And then, of course, you have to remember where this was taking place. It was taking place in the woods. In the wild. And like I said, there was this idea that this untamed country... This wilderness was just rife with opportunities for men to return to their lower, baser nature and reject their divine appointment as God's ambassadors to everybody. So in trying to confront the wilderness, they had to confront the idea that they were part of it. Right, and like what part do we as humans have in this? Can we keep ourselves separate? Well, bestiality mucked that up. So this is from a paper called The Cry of Sodom Inquired Into by John Knup. Bestiality complicated matters. Just as it blurred the inner boundary between man and beast, it also weakened the comfortable external dichotomy of civilization and wilderness. The occurrence of bestiality within the pale of English culture suggested that while the colonists might conquer the wilderness in a physical presence, its moral influences were not so easy to combat. And if the curse of the wilderness had taken root in the colonist, and their culture, no scapegoat could possibly draw off all the corruption they would generate. New England could easily purge itself by sending the men into the wilderness of hell, but the land would not thereby rid itself of the uncleanness when the land itself had elicited this bestial behavior from its inhabitants. Ah, so the question of, is it actually being in the wild, being in this new frontier, causing this? That's something a lot of the writers, the magistrates at the time, kind of touch on and then get really freaked out about. And there was this weird debate about whether or not America could ever belong to God. Some people thought the land just belonged to Satan. Kind of agree at this point. Getting there. (laughs) Now it does. Mm, That's what I'm saying. You do see a lot of people start to equate bestiality with possession or being bewitched or, you know, having the devil's influence on them in some way and start kind of like externalizing the drive to make piglets 
And so this became the taboo to end all taboos in Puritan society. Rightfully so. I mean, I could definitely see it ranking up there if I, it was actually happening. It's a victimless crime-ish. Like, I'm sorry, way more than child molestation, which the guy got whipped for. Right. But poor cows. Poor cows. I do feel bad for the cows. Dog just licked your privy parts, but the cows didn't seem to like it much. The sow did. <laughs> Lusty sow. Hand of God. Nah. I think there's a vibrator called that. I'm almost sure there is. The lusty sour hand of God. Probably both. Both, yeah. So, according to <clears throat> Freud. Freud? Freud. How are you bringing Freud into this? I bring Freud into everything. I wonder what he would say about that. <laughs> the desire to violate taboos persists in the unconscious. Those who obey the taboo and have an ambivalent attitude toward what that taboo prohibits still observe the magical power that is attributed to the taboo, which is based upon the capacity to arouse temptation. Mm. So, of course, that idea that taboos being taboo makes them even more enticing. Right, and I think that it's almost self-filling prophecy at that point. It's like, oh, I can't. Oh, I can't. I can't. I can't do that thing. I mean, you see this in teenagers. You know, like... You see, like, one teenager do a weird thing, and I guess fads, just in general, that are slightly deviant catch on because people are like, oh, well, that's the thing that can happen. Right, and so we have this panic, this bestiality panic that is going on, and everyone is seeing everybody screwing cows or whatever, mm-hmm. and they're all getting convicted and lashed and hanged. And cows are going into pits like crazy. Yeah. We've kind of linked that to, you know, was this idea of these witches and bestiality and buggering and all the other supernatural concerns and the fear of the wild and the unknown linked to the creation of the idea of the Jersey Devil. Well, I think that there is definitely something to that because even in medical literature from around the time that we think the story really got its chutzpah together... You know, stated that monstrous birds were the result of unnatural coitus with the mothers. Right. Well, the medical literature said a lot of things. (laughs) It said some really awful things. So throughout the 1800s, we have all these random weird sightings of the Jersey Devil out cavorting with mermaids and his BFF, headless pirate ghost, Pete. Pete! Sure, why not? His name's not Pete. What's his name? Ridley. Ridley the Rapscallion. Okay. But they're not, they're just kind of percolating. Like, they haven't boiled over yet. It's definitely just kind of a loosey-goosey idea. We have no full pandemic panic thing happening. Thank God, right? Thank God. Until Uh, 1909. Oh, okay. Well, we we had a good run. We had a good run. So in 1909, from January 16th through the 23rd, we had the appearance of the Jersey Devil in 30 different towns throughout New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Thousands of people claimed to see the devil or his footprints. That was totally Ridley the Rapscallion out there with cookie cutters, like making footprints in people's yards and laughing his head off. So a lot of these people were upstanding citizens in the community. They described him in so many different ways. So, so many different ways. No two alike. (laughs) Each one more colorful and creative than the next. Were they like one-upping each other? I don't know. Like some of the terms they called him a a jabberwock. Oh my God. The Jersey jabberwock is so much better. There's alliteration. You have the kangaroo horse flying (laughs) a death. 
Oh, my. That took a turn. The Kingawing. Better. Wooselbug. And a prehistoric lizard. A lizard? Since when is it a lizard? It's a horse, right? It's a, it's a horse snake. Horse, snake, bat, wolf. Goat. Whatever. I'm always serious said. part goat. Yeah. And so... On January 17th, early in the morning, we have the first lone sighting in Woodbury, New Jersey. Fat Cozen says, I heard a hissing and something white flew across the street. I saw two spots of phosphorus, the eyes of the beast. There was a white cloud like escaping steam from an engine. It moved as fast as an auto. I think it was a car. Right? So it sounds like. It had headlights. That would have been a newfangled thing, right? And then you have several witnesses in Bristol, Pennsylvania, the same morning. And John McCowan said he heard a screeching, whistling sound. And I looked from the window and was astonished to see a large creature standing on the banks of the canal. It looked something like an eagle, and it happened along the towpath. Uh, that's a crane. Maybe. A crane. Well, Officer Sackville said he heard a similar screeching bird-like animal. And the postmaster, E.W. Minster, said... It was like a large crane, but with emitting a glow like a firefly, and its head resembled that of a ram. But many people found these like abnormal hoof prints the next morning. They'd find mm-hmm. them on their windows and doors. Their windows? Like windowsills. Oh, okay. And interestingly, the pastors noticed that there was a large increase of attendance in church the next Sunday. We know that it was actually not Ridley Rapscallion. It was actually Father Brown with a cookie cutter in New Jersey. Tithing had been down. Way down. Way down. Too far down. Church needed a new furnace. Because that's not where the steam was coming from, okay? And there was even an incident where a trolley was going along and all of the passengers saw this creature flying above the trolley. Why is it not a bird? I don't know. Maybe it is. And so they even started to arm all of the trolley drivers so they could defend the trolleys against this Jersey devil. Well, if the cannonball didn't take him out. Right? And the mayor of Burlington told police to keep a sharp lookout for the creature and shoot it on sight. Of course he did. Marka. So many, so many sightings and a lot of them were kind of like they heard a sound they heard this shriek they saw something flying all of their chickens had died but there were no markings on the chickens maybe they died of fright they were chicken Mm Mm-hmm. okay it's actually where the term comes from no it's not no it's not (laughs) now there were several reports of the capture or death of the jersey devil okay now william wasso he was a track walker he was heading towards clayton when he saw the Jersey Devil. And he was moving along the track and he was sniffing it when his tail touched the third rail. A puff of fire and smoke and a violent explosion occurred and melted the track for 20 feet both ways. But there was no remnant left. It got zapped. Electricity. One last thing to worry about. Thank God. Okay, moving on. Well, people kept seeing it. <laughs> so... Theodore Hackett was a lineman for the Delaware and Atlantic Telephone Company, and he reported that his fellow worker, Howard Campbell, was working away from the other men, and he saw a terrible beast coming towards him down the path. So, he climbed up the nearest pole and threw himself on the lines. For what purpose? To get away from this beast. Oh my god. So Hackett raised his gun and fired. One shot broke a wing and it fell to the ground, 
uttering hideous screams. But before anyone could collect his wits, the thing was up and off. This was reported in the Philadelphia Record. Now, another incident occurred with Miss J.H. White. Did she shoot it too? No. So she was in Philadelphia and she was out hanging her clothes on the line and saw a great beast in her yard. In Philly? Yes. And it stood and rose up six feet tall. It had alligator skin and breathed fire. What? You going off book. It's a dragon. All right. So she Hit it with a broom. Swoons. Oh, okay. She swoons. The other thing women do. Yes. Okay. One of their options, A or B. So her husband hears the screams. Oh, she screams, then swoons. Well, of course. Oh, I'm sorry. You, right. you scream while you swoon. I thought she just went, oh. No, you, oh. And her husband takes a clothes prop and runs after the beast. And the beast scurries over the fence and into the alley. Another, As beasts don't want to do. Yes. Another incident, the firemen saw the Jersey Devil. Okay, the firemen at this time are not what you think firemen are. No, but they did turn their hoses on it. Did it melt? No. I'm melting. So besides the fire-breathing dragon in Philadelphia. If they could have hooked that woman up with the firemen, they might have been on to something. There was an incident in South Camden with Mary Serbinsky. So she heard a commotion in her yard, Mm -hmm. and she knew her dog was up there, so she went to see what was going on, and found her dog in a vice-like grip of a horrible monster. So guess what she did? Hit it with a broom! Yes! (laughs) No, I was joking! So she brandished her broom against the creature, and it flew at her, but then the last minute turned and flew away. So the Camden police showed up, and at her house... A large mob had gathered. So they started heading the direction the Jersey Devil flew off. And they heard a piercing scream and started towards it. So this is literally villagers with pitchforks. Literally. Because some of them had, like, sticks and things. And so the policemen were in the front of the mob and started emptying their revolvers towards the Jersey Devil, which flew away. This poor bird. (laughs) This poor bird. So another incident occurs where the Jersey de- Devil was captured. This is all like in like a short period like of time. four days. Oh my God. So a farmhand was driving a wagon, mm-hmm. which the Jersey Devil decided to ride on. And <laughs> yeah. The pirate ghost was there too. They just couldn't see uh, him. For sure. Right. The farmhand drove it into the barn, which they quickly locked, slammed the doors, <laughs> and they thought they trapped the beast. But when they went to search the barn, they found that he had vanished. So at the time, everyone was trying to figure out what the hell the Jersey Devil was. Some people claimed it was a prehistoric beast. Some people claimed it was a pterodactyl. Okay. Scientists from the Smithsonian Institute earned their credibility and made our nation proud by saying that a creature could have lived deep in the limestone caves. Mia being trapped with food, air, and water, and that recent volcanic activity had allowed it to escape and swim to shore. Well, that is really probably as good a theory as any. Sure. I'm not embarrassed. A naturalist, J.K. Hewitt, described it as a jabberwock. He's not a naturalist. He's a literature major. You read a little too much Lewis Carroll. I believe that's real, and it's in New Jersey. And when... Talking about the footprints, these hoof prints that Mm -hmm. were seen everywhere, a geologist W.S. Reed said, The mild but general idiocy on the part of the public. (laughs) 
has led people to think they're of the Jersey Devil. He said that these could have just been human footprints that had been kind of frozen and refrozen and kind of reformed. Or they were the devil. Obviously. Obs. Jody is so disappointed in him. Now later in like the 60s, people did come out saying that they had done some of these footprints. Oh, they stole the magic. One of these days, you know what's going to happen? One day, someone's going to come out and tell me that magical YouTube video is nothing but a goat. No, it's real. Okay, thank God. Now, amidst all this panic, come our heroes. The pirate ghosts and the Jersey Devil best friends forever, oh my gosh. Well, they're the true heroes of the story. <laughs> but this is Jacob Hope and Norman Jeffries. They worked for the 9th and Arch Street Museum in Philadelphia. I'm going to give you a guess of what kind of museum this is. I think they charge like a certain amount. A dime. Yes, a dime museum. So they came out and stated that Hope, an animal trainer, had this mysterious creature in his possession that he had brought back from Australia. An Australian vampire. Are you serious? The only one in captivity. Oh my God. And it had escaped two weeks prior and what was causing all of this panic. He offered a $500 reward and stated that it presented a threat to wildlife and pets. He said it's carnivorous with a huge appetite, feeding ravenously on rabbits, chickens, and other small animals, rending them savagely from its terrible claws. Oh my gosh, that sounds really horrifying. There were some some scary animals in Australia, too. There's no telling what he brought with him. Right, it was new discoveries every day. He received word that the beast was stalking through the woods. So he took an army of animal handlers and armed them with nets, javelins, marlin spikes, and cobblestones. Oh, this poor creature. Now they eventually tracked the creature down. It struggled. They were able to capture it with a net. Like a butterfly net? Like a Scooby-Doo net. Okay. And of course, once you capture the Jersey Devil and you own a dime museum... What is one to do? Stuff it. Fine. Exhibit it. Of course. Okay. So posters went out. Caught. And here. Alive. The Leeds Devil. So it's also called the Leeds Devil. Okay. Captured Friday after a terrible struggle. The fearful, frightful, ferocious monster, which has been terrorizing two states, swims! Exclamation point. Flies! Whoa! Gallops! Okay, wolves are not good for swimming. Exhibited securely chained in a massive steel cage. Let's go. A living dragon, more fearsome than the fabled monsters of mythology. Ten cents, amidst to all. I got a dime. Got a dime? I got a dime. Tell me about this devil. So, as we always do. Yeah. We're going to ruin the magic. No. <laughs> so the, this is like my favorite hoax. I love this hoax. This is such a great hoax. Okay, tell me about the hoax. So after hearing about all of this panic going around the South Jersey, Pennsylvania area, mm-hmm. this promoter, Norman Jeffries, and the animal trainer, Jacob Hope, decided that they were going to cash in on this. Okay. So Jeffries rented a large kangaroo. How does one rent a kangaroo? I don't know. I want to rent a kangaroo. Is there a deposit? Like, like do you? What do you do to the kangaroo that you don't get your deposit back? Well, this is what you do. Okay. 
You paint green stripes on it. Oh, baby, no. Glue on false wings made of bronze and covered with rabbit fur and claws. Oh, God. Oh, Peter's spinning out right now. So after renting this kangaroo and dressing it up, <laughs> he went down and paid 15 to 20 roustabouts to come with him. They dress, He dressed them in farmer's clothing and they went and captured the Jersey Devil. Of course they did. So they took the creature to the cellar of the Dime Museum and he was in the, a steel cage. He didn't really want to perform, though. Poor Boo. So they got a boy with a stick with a nail in it. No. And they'd have curtains over the cage. And so everybody would walk in, uh-huh. stand before the cage. They would lift the curtain up. And the boy would poke the <laughs> kangaroo with a stick. No. It would hop forward. And the ladies would swoon. <coughs> and the curtains would fall. Was it like a blow-off? Was it like its own thing? A blow-off is like where you pay extra. No. So it was just part of the Dime Museum. You got the ten, whole... Ten cents admits all. You got the whole Dime Museum and a flying kangaroo. Vaudeville so, shows, flying kangaroo. Oh my God, I'm what? sure some minstrel bullshit. <laughs> but you know, at this time, there was all these new scientific discoveries. It was not that odd for someone to come up with this really weird creature and say like, this is real. I got it from the depths of Australia. No, that's not weird at all. That's a perfectly normal thing to do. It's happening literally all the time. But there were always skeptics. So one such occasion happened when it was reported, round about 1799, that there was a venomous egg-laying mammal with the bill of a duck, the feet of an otter, and the tail of a beaver. Bullshit. Hanging out in Australia. That's ridiculous. It lays eggs. And it's a mammal. And it's venomous. Those don't exist. It does. It does. It does. And it's called a platypus. Oh, of course. A platypus with its sixth sense. All right. They can sense electricity like sharks. It is an amazing creature. Right. But think it back. Like, put yourself back in that time. It's like, there's no way that's real. I want to see a real one. There's no video footage. No photographs. No. You, if you're lucky, you get a carcass. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. So in 1799, George Shaw described the creature. He's a very famous naturalist. On a subject so extraordinary as the present, a degree of skepticism is not only pardonable, but laudable. And I ought perhaps to acknowledge that I almost doubt the testimony of my own eyes with respect to the structure of the animal's beak. Yet, must confess that I perceive no appearance of any deceptive preparation, and the edges of the rictus, the insertion, and when tried by test of maceration in water, so as to render every part completely movable, seem perfectly natural, nor can the most accurate examination of the expert anatomist discover any deception of this particular. He is covering his ass. Well, I mean, you have shit like the Fiji mermaid. Right. That's just popping up like crazy. There's a lot of writing that's like, this is the work of Chinese sailors. Meaning the same people who cobbled together chimpanzees and fish tails and called them mermaids. Right, they were making a killing. But the platypi, the noble platypi of Australia, they exist. And that's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. What are you smoking? I just love platypi, dude. I really do. Like, ever since I was a kid, I was like, that looks so wrong. 
but it's alive and I love it. It is such a mistake. <laughs> it is such a mistake. It is such a fuck you to the rest of the animal kingdom. I adore it. I want to be reincarnated as a platypus. Well, there was another one a little further back in time. And in Africa, as we're exploring and finding all of these new animals, of course, new to the Western world, there was rumor going around about an African unicorn. And this was this creature that was horse-like and had horns. Mm-hmm. And it was described by lots of local people, but kind of more like donkey-like. People were very intrigued by this idea. The first person to describe this particular creature to the West was Sir Henry Stanley. And so that may sound familiar because he is also the explorer that was sent out to find Dr. Livingston. Dr. Livingston, I presume? Exactly. So he is of that fame, but he is also of the fame of finding this creature, or at least hearing about it. Okay. So he says in his book in 1890, the book titled In Darkest Africa. Oh dear. The Wambuti knew a donkey and called it Ati. They say that they sometimes catch them in pits. What they can find to eat is a wonder. They eat leaves. And so he was really intrigued by this creature because it was donkey-like, but had horns and also had stripes like a zebra. Bullshit. But only on the back half. And so... He was talking with another naturalist, Sir Johnston. Sir Johnston was sent into the Congo to return a tribe of pygmies that had recently been captured. (laughs) (laughs) Can't make this up. Oh, history. You're so terrible. And so he wanted to find this creature. He was unable to, but he was able to get a few strips of the hide on bandoliers. And they were of the striped part. And he sent it back to the British Museum. And they were like, you found a new zebra. Good job. (laughs) Yay for you. That's quite novel indeed. But he didn't because it wasn't a new zebra. It was what's now called the Okapi. And so as I described it, it's kind of donkey-like, but it has small fur-covered horns in the males, like a giraffe, because it's actually... In the giraffe family is the only relative to the giraffe that still exists. That's so interesting. Yeah, and so in 1901, they did finally get a complete skin and two skulls. Now, of course, that is credited to some sir of some sort, but he just bought it off the tribesmen. And it was officially named after Johnston, like its Latin name. Yeah, lovely. Like, yeah. So a creature that everyone thought was just made up did actually exist. Well, it looks like two animals sewn together. It really does. So the platypus looks like five animals sewn together. Yeah, so this is a smaller number of animals sewn together, but still, incredulity was due. So while the Leeds devil may have been a bit of a gaff, which is another sideshow term I'm going to throw to you today, there was, in fact, a carnivorous marsupial that threw a kink into the naturalist plants, the footing of the wild beast having claws like a tiger, An one Australian report said, mm-hmm, were reported just a little ways before the Dutch East India Company officers, who also reported seeing tiger footprints. In the early 19th century, a penal colony was established in Tasmania. The first recorded account of this creature came from escaped convicts. Upon their recapture, their experience was noted in the diary of the colony's pastor, 
Robert Knopwood, in 1805. Am engaged all morn upon business examining the five prisoners that went into the bush. They informed me at, that on the 2nd of May, when they were in the wood, they see a large tiger, and that the dog they had with them went nearly up to it, and the tiger see the men, which were about 100 yards away from it, and it went away. And I make no doubt... But here are many wild animals which we have not yet seen. The prisoners saw the tiger. Some creature. But in the Sydney Gazette, a New South Wales advertiser, just a tickle later, there was a report. An animal of truly singular and novel description was killed by dogs on the 30th of March on a hill immediately contiguous to the settlement of Yorkton Port Dalrymple. From the following minute description of which by Lieutenant Governor Patterson, it must be considered a species perfectly distinct from any animal creation hitherto known, and certainly the only powerful and terrific of the carnivorous and voracious tribe yet discovered in any part of New Holland or its adjacent islands. What they're describing was often called the opossum wolf. Oh my. Or the marsupial tiger. Mm-hmm. Or the Tasmanian wolf. Right. Or the Tasmanian tiger. And its name that was actually given it is the thylacine, which sounds like an era. It's a carnivorous marsupial. And interestingly, it's one of the only marsupials where both sexes have pouches. What did the male's pouch do? It was like a purse to keep your balls in. Oh, good. I thought that was the woman Tasmanian tiger's job. Maybe so. Possibly. I don't think they were trading them back and forth. The last one died in captivity at the Hobart Zoo in 1936. So it's now extinct. Yeah, and you can actually see video footage of that. It's kind of interesting. It is a crazy looking animal. Its jaws open to this unnaturally wide proportion. And it has like a very thick tail that is more like opossums it looks a lot like a possum and it's probably its closest relative but the pouch face is backward right there have been a lot of reported sightings of this creature since it went extinct people have gone on searches through the bush searching for the tasmanian tiger but the reason they went extinct is because people offered bounties for killing them because they were perceived as these voracious sheep slaughtering mad beast which they weren't. No. They were very shy, like nocturnal creatures. A lot of things were blamed on them that were probably caused by wild dogs. But there were articles in like children's encyclopedias. This one's from 1947 that said, A sort of nightmare wolf, but it is striped with dark bars across its back, and the body merges imperceptibly into its tail. Its home is Tasmania, and its lair, a dark cave or cleft in the rock. Its habits are those of our own wolves reinforced by the acid tincture of a peculiar savagery. It seems to be the Caliban of the wolf tribe, making up in ferocity and blank savagery what it lacks in the refined cunning of a true wolf. Like other marsupials, it carries its young in its pouch, and the whimper of the young hopeful in that furry cradle has sounded in the ears of many a sheep, helpless victim to the fangs of the mother. Lord. I know. Completely false. Yeah, they're really sweet. They seem like like dear little things. Well, of course, we can't help but mention dragons. Dragons. Yes. Dragon sightings, much like the Jersey Devil. But now this occurs more in the South Pacific. 
Okay. So, supposedly, mm-hmm. a Dutch pilot, or some sort of pilot, the story changes, crashed in the water or on an island or something like that. And A white guy went there. Yes. That's all you need to know. And wound up on this remote island in Indonesia and reported seeing giant reptiles. And they're like, well, that's shell shock. We're just going to put you over here. Just talk about the pretty dragons, Johnny. That's right. But, you know, if that's true or not, who knows? But there were many reports of these land crocodiles and these prehistoric monsters that were living on these tiny islands. And so in 1910, a Dutch lieutenant, Hinsbroek, a colonial official, decided he was going to go find out for himself. And he went to these islands and he, he found the dragons. No, he didn't. And he took photos and a skin of them back, and they were formally described as a Varanus lizard. What? No, there are no, but no dragons. Well, in 1926, mm-hmm. the American explorer W. Douglas Burden, along with help from the American Natural History Museum, decided that he was going to seek Quote, a primeval monster in a primeval setting and dub these creatures he was going to find and bring back alive the Komodo dragons. That's a badass name. He what? did a great job. And he took his wife along with him and he took <laughs> lots of video footage and diaries and wrote books about it and these great adventures that there's no way they're true. It's amazing. <laughs> and this one about his wife. Catherine White Burden being out in this prime evil wilderness when she comes across the dragons. Near he came and near the shaggy creature with grim heads swinging heavily from side to side. I remembered all the fantastic stories we'd heard of these monsters attacking men and horses. Now listening to the short hissing that came like a gust of evil wind and observing the action of that darting snake-like tongue that seemed to sense the very fear that held me, I was affected in a manner not easy to relate. The creature was less than five yards away, and the subtle reptilian smell was in my nostrils. Too late now to leap from hiding, I closed my eyes and waited. What happened? Ah, the great white hunter, of course, emerges from the jungle to slay this beast. Wow, we have a damsel in distress and a white knight. Right, and so this was a hugely publicized expedition. Oh, I mean, rightfully so. It's pretty fucking cool, dude. Yeah, and they captured two live specimens. Cool. And ten dead ones. Oh. And brought them back to the Bronx Zoo. So they lived there for a short time before dying. And <laughs> they were this hugely popular exhibit. People were lining up for blocks and blocks to go see it. I Like, I would wait. Like, that's one of the things that I think is, like, awesome enough to wait for. They're really cool. Well, we've seen them. I know. They're, they're really cool. Next time you're in New Orleans, they have one at the Audubon Zoo. So remember, this happened in the 20s, and it inspired a lot of people, including producers. Like, so, the people who made up. No. Yeah. That was a lot later. No, it was up. Let me try again. It was up. Listen. So, we go on this expedition to this little island, find a prehistoric monster, and bring it back to New York City. New York City? Oh my goodness, it's King Kong. It's King Kong. They even kept that kind of name, like Komodo Dragon, King Kong. Like They were very inspired by this idea. Creators of the movie even wanted to use the Komodo Dragons in the movie. Of course, they were <laughs> unable to. 
obviously the Komodo dragon is a real thing. It's the largest lizard in the world and one of the only venomous. The largest verified specimen was 10 feet long and weighed 360 pounds. Like, uh, my phobia is lizards. And they are venomous. Yeah, that's so terrifying. they feed on, like, deer and boar and goats. And they can run at speeds up to 13 miles an hour. No, 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 no. I'm so glad I don't encounter those in my daily activity. Speaking of bestiality, I don't... Yes? I don't know if you can call it that when a god does it. Yes. <laughs> but so according to legend, the ram that bore the golden fleece sought by Jason and the Argonauts was sired by Poseidon himself. Of course. Yeah. So again, we have that, that narrow line between man and beast. And God. And God and things. But it's not frowned upon as much, it seems, here. Jason was sent by his uncle Pelia to capture the golden fleece. And it was like a fool's errand, in theory. And you know the story. Yeah, I've seen the Ray, Ray Harryhausen film. And if you haven't... Go. Pause. Go, pause. <laughs> go watch it. It's amazing. So that golden fleece idea. File it away for a second. Got another story for you. Okay. In the Himalayas, in Bhutan, legend has it that in the 16th century, a tantric master was asked to perform a miracle at the end of a feast. His name was Drukpa Kunli. And so he asked the people to bring him a cow and a goat. And he ate all of the meat from both of the creatures, leaving nothing but bone. And then he took the pile of bones and he threw them all together and he snapped his fingers. And lo and behold, in true Ray Harryhausen fashion, the creature sprung to life and danced. It didn't dance. Aww. And it actually made like a whole creature with like skin and fur and things. And it had a golden fleece. And it had a golden fleece. And what he had created was the Taken. Okay. And it is the national animal of Bataan. And these creatures are sort of unbelievable. <laughs> they, There is a golden variety. There are four species that are known today. And there is a variety that is like fluorescent yellow. It's kind of crazy. But the British naturalist who first identified the Taken for Western science never actually saw one alive. Returning to that theme. In Nepal, during the mid-19th century, local hunters brought Brian Houghton Hodson a Taken skin, describing it and drawing the animal for him. But with no way of, of observing its behavior, Hodgson was baffled about where to place the creature on the tree of life. Did it belong with a wild goat, bighorn sheep, or the antelope family. His confusion reflected the scientific name that was given to the species, Bodarkus taxicali, which means ox-like gazelle badger-colored. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) The taken is a goat antelope. It's more closely related to sheep and goats as opposed to the musk ox, which is something that people try to, like, lump it with, because that's how big it is. It looks like a musk ox, but it's just convergent evolution. Right. Which is... Something evolving to look like something else. Oh, okay. Kind of feeling, filling the same niche from a different line. Right. Okay. It's got a two-toed hoof, which is really crazy looking. And it's got this big spur that comes off the back of them. And it's about 55 inches tall at the shoulder. And they can weigh up to like seven or 800 pounds. And they walk up the sides of mountains. Like sheep or goats. Yeah, so definitely a real creature with a golden fleece. With several 
mythological origins. It's amazing. Google it. You spell it T-A-K-I-N. We'll wait. We'll wait. So one more for you is this thing called a tapitawichet. A tapitawichet? A tapitawichet. A tapitawichet. Right. It was described. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> it was described in 1763 by Governor Arthur Dobbs of North Carolina. Who is a liar. He said it was the great wonder of the vegetable world. The tapitawichet. Is a vegetable wonder. Sign Gov NC. Heart XOXO. Love forever. Out. And so he sent this odd carnivorous plant to London in 1770. And so Carl Linnaeus. I know that guy. Who's that? He is the he's the guy that made the tree. He's the guy that created taxonomy. Taxonomy at the tree. And so he was able to examine a dead tapitowich. And felt that this was absurd. There's no way this is real. He said a carnivorous plant was against the order of nature as willed by God. Oh, we're back to this again. This old thing. Now, he finally was able to see a live specimen and was convinced. Now, the London merchant and botanist John Ellis published the first description of a new sensitive plant that he called Dionia. Musipella. And I like to pit a witch better. It was called this because he was referencing a beauty and a beast. So Dionysus, so love and beauty, and Musipella, which is Latin for mousetrap. Yeah. Because its leaves snap shut almost instantly when an insect touches one of its trigger hairs. So this is obviously the Venus flytrap. Which shouldn't be real. Shouldn't be real. It's like, again, think of yourself never hearing of this before. And so you be like, oh, yeah, there's a plant that eats bugs. And you're like, bull. And they're like, oh, there's a bull with two toes that looks like a sheep and can climb mountains. And you're like, unicorn. <laughs> so you can see that the idea of this amazing creature, this carnivorous marsupial from Australia that was accidentally released by an animal handler in the New Jersey woods, while of course kind of odd, and you do have to have skepticism that is not only pardonable but laudable, it's it's still possible. I mean, they're finding platypuses. Platypi. Platypuses. Platypi. They're finding these odd creatures like a platypus or the Tasmanian tiger. Which was a carnivorous marsupial. I mean, it didn't fly. But really, that, that's only one more step. <laughs> so, on the theme of... This is bizarre. But when I was a kid, there was this rumor going around the tiny little town that I grew up in that there was a kangaroo loose. Was there? Yes. I don't know where it came from, but there's a kangaroo. Or there was. There was one. People would see it. And everyone came in with a kangaroo story. And... Finally, like, it did come out that there was somebody that had had a kangaroo illegally and it had gotten away. Like, they had one as a pet and it got out. I don't dispute that crazy people do crazy things like accidentally let a carnivorous flying marsupial go in the Pine Barrens. Whoops. It could happen. It could happen. So, I mean, there have been, of course, more and more sightings throughout time of the Jersey Devil. They always hear those screams and cries and sightings. In 1951 in Gibbstown, a boy claimed to see a thing out of the window. <laughs> Blood coming out of its face. He screamed and fell to the floor in convulsions. 
course, no one else saw it. The police came. No one could find it. That night, Ronald James and a group of teenagers hunted for the creature. And they heard unearthly screams. And one even claimed it almost grabbed him. But, I mean, this is obviously just some kid just being a kid and trying to get attention. The school kids were so excited, though, they had to bring police chief in to calm them down. Sounds like the Gorbals vampire. Right, right. And they even put up signs around the woods, and there are pictures of this, saying, the Jersey Devil is a hoax. Oh, <laughs> killing dreams. And, of course, more reports of them finding tracks. In 1952, strange tracks were found in the Pine Barrens, and later they actually found a bear's foot mounted on a pole that was used to make the tracks. Oh. Come on, commit. Bring it home with you. And so, you know, you mentioned, oh, is this a bird? Is this a bird? A lot of people do think that this might be, besides just hysteria, the sandhill crane. Okay, I have seen a sandhill crane, and they cut an imposing figure. Right, they're large, they're 12 pounds, they're 4 feet tall, they have an 80-inch wingspan, but they also move around, they have these, like, mating dances, they, like, gyrate, they throw their wings up, they do eat crops. So if you had, like, your crops destroyed, they will they will fight you. <laughs> I will fight you. They will fight you. They have, like, red circles around their eyes, too, mm-hmm. and, like, a big red eye spot. Right. And they also make this whooping noise. Now, as we are wont to do... Are we? Yes. Let's mm. debunk some things. All right. So there's no historical evidence in colonial times of any sort of Jersey Devil or Leeds Devil. There's no one talking about it in newspapers or pamphlets or broadsides. Or ballads. No Jersey Devil murder ballads, unfortunately. Oh, but I I just wrote one. There are no reports of children being killed. And of course, remember they were all Quakers. Mm -hmm. Quakers don't do exorcisms. They don't do anything. That's kind of their deal. They're just friends. They're just friends. Like the Jersey Devil and the Headless Pirate Ghost. Pirate Ghost and the Jersey Devil. Best friends forever. We're making adventure. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that most likely the lead from everything I've read is that this is a combination, of course, of some of the Fears that we talked about, some of the fears of the witches and bestiality and monstrous birds and creatures out in the wild. But we can never discount man. And what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. So in walks our character, Daniel Leeds. Now he was one of the counselors for the first governor of New Jersey, Lord Cornbury. Oh, that sounds British. Right, he arrived in Burlington in 1677. Now, this guy was a little eccentric. He was a Quaker, and as a young man, he had ecstatic visions. Oh, good. And he settled in Great Egg Harbor, mm-hmm. which later came to be known as Leeds Point. Good for him. Where supposedly... Jersey Devil was born into this world of malice and miscontent. and Right. So he published an almanac in 1687 and so the quakers were not too happy about this what's wrong with an almanac well it had astrological (laughs) data (laughs) say no more so it had inappropriate language and astrological symbols that were way too pagan whoa and so they kind of tried to 
shun him? Did they shun him? No, because the Quakers were nicer than that. Okay. He eventually did apologize to the congregation, trying to kind of make amends. Mm-hmm. And they were like, thanks, but we're going to gather all your almanacs and burn them. Just for good measure. Well, they burned the cows, dude. Burned everything. <laughs> burned all of it. So he was not too happy about this. And he just kind of kept delving into this Christian occultism. Oh, that's not going to go over well with Quakers. Right. He wrote a book called The Temple of Wisdom in 1688. Kind of creating this personal cosmology where he talked about angels and natural magic and astrology. Oh, honey. And behavior of devils. Thank God they're pacifists. Right? If this were Salem, you would be so dead. Well, and he paraphrased from a lot of people and copied from a lot of people. Mm. And he especially copied from the German mystic and heretic, Jacob Bohem, who wrote a book called Aura in 1612. So again, Quakers, not happy. All right. Like I could handle the occultism. It's the plagiarism that gets me. That's just uncautionable. So the Quakers got really pissed off. And in a Philadelphia meeting, they decided to suppress the Leeds book. So again, just trying to take things Temple out of Temple of Wisdom they were trying to... Yes. Yeah, okay. So he wrote another piece called The Trumpet Sounded Out of the Wilderness of America <sighs> in 1699. And he was going all anti-Quaker. Oh. And he said that they denied the divinity of Christ and accused them of being anti-monarchist. Well, spoiler alert, the whole country was. And so that wasn't enough. He sided with Cornbury. And the British governor of New Jersey? The Quakers hated him. Oh, no! So George Fox, <laughs> the founder of Quakerism. Well, that's the foxy man. Yes. It's a foxy man. It's foxy. He, foxy. La- he lashed out. Quaker. At a Burlington meeting, he was called evil, and then eventually they published the defense of Quakerism, saying Satan's harbinger encountered being something by way to answer to Daniel Leeds in 1700. So this is where they publicly accused him of working with the devil. Mm. Gasp. Well, so he continues to publish his almanac. He's like in love with the idea of his almanac. He passes the business on to his son, Titan leads. He named his son Titan. Of course. Mm-hmm. And so Titan does this odd thing. He redesigns the Leeds crest in 1728 mm-hmm. to include three rivens. What's a riven? So it's this dragon-like creature, kind of serpentine, with a fearsome face, clawed feet, and bat-like wings. Uh, does that sound familiar? Sounds like the pirate ghost's best friend. So all these things, I mean, is being accused of working with the devil. Mm -hmm. They start labeling everything with this Jersey devil looking image. Mm -hmm. And then as their almanac is being published, someone else in 1732 decides to publish an almanac. Is his name Boy Richard? It is. That's Ben Franklin. Right. So Benjamin Franklin decides to publish... Poor Richard's Almanac. And Benjamin Franklin, for those of you who don't know, did way better than the Commodore. He's on the $100 bill. That's right. And on the back is a very fine etching of him with a French whore. I wish. That would be real money. So, 
In his second edition, 1733, Franklin decides to go against his competition, the Leeds Almanac. He's going to take him down. And so he uses, Franklin's such a badass, he uses astrological technique to predict that Leeds would die on October 17th of that year. (laughs) I'll beat this man at his own game while I wear my beaver hat. I can do this comfortably because I'm wearing my bifocals and all I have to do is glance down. So Leeds got pissed off about this. This is Titan Leeds. And he retaliated in Leeds' almanac by saying that Franklin has manifest himself a fool and a liar. Okay, that's fine, my boy. I'm just going to be here enjoying my library that I invented. Also electricity in the fire department. He did not invent electricity. I beg to differ. (laughs) Don't tell me what I don't know. So, Franklin replies just with outrage. How dare you? As only Ben Frank can. (laughs) He said that Leeds was too well bred to use any man so indecently and so scurriously. Scurriously. Therefore, the person saying these things could not be Titan, but his ghost. Especially since he had died the previous year on October 17th. He went on to say... That he had received much abuse from the ghost of Titan Leeds. If spectral evidence is good enough for Salem, it's good enough for Paul Richard. So after Titan Leeds finally did actually die in 1738, Franklin kept it going. Off by a hair. Franklin said that honest Titan, deceased, was raised from the dead and made to abuse his old friend, Ben Franklin. So, you know, just out of fun, just out of just spite, he cast his rival as this, like, ghost that was coming back to haunt him. It was a witch. It's what witches did. Well, you know, and when Ben Franklin was publishing his paper, he did report on witch trials around this area around this time. And also around this time, the mid-1730s is supposedly when the Jersey Devil was born. Benny boy, Benny boy, what have you been up to? So we can look at this combination of coming to the new world, coming to this wild new area, of being afraid of what the new world held, but also what this wilderness could do to you. It could tear you apart from within. It could separate you from any divinity that you were capable of. There's something scary about the woods, and that's all that was here that and what was lurking in it and within you and that's not just a story i guess that's not just a story society 13 podcast network redefining podcasts society-13.com i like to listen